You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Kasara Davidson. Kasara is the founder and owner of Diaspora Travel and Trade, a full-service consulting company specializing in the curation of travel experiences and so much more. She has a particular focus on sustainable travel, social enterprise, and the commercial and cultural activities of Black and Indigenous communities in the Americas. Since 2015, Kasara has curated a number of experiences and content for everyone from globetrotters to for-profit entities. She now splits her time between New York City, Washington, D.C., and Havana. Yes, I do mean Cuba. This is a far cry from her previous life as a business consultant turned corporate attorney at a white shoe law firm. You heard that right. Kasara landed exactly where a lot of recent law grads dream of landing and later did what many disillusioned lawyers don't have the courage to do. She acknowledged that the life she created was not the one she really wanted, and she made a new choice. Now, if you know anything about me, you already know that Kasara and I have a couple of things in common, and naturally, we hit it off right away. Plus, she brought that raw honesty to the conversation that always makes for a great interview. So this is a good one, folks. Please take a listen and enjoy. Kasara, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Like you came in with this fun energy <laughs> and you've got the hair, the curls going, the pigtails, and you brought Cuban rum. So like, we're really happy to have you. Let me just say that. <laughs> I try to have, I have hot sauce and Cuban rum in my bag. I love I that. <laughs> I love that. So we know we're catching you on a pass through yeah. here in New York. So we're happy we were able to catch you while you're in town. I must say a little bit jealous that you are getting out of here as we have these temperatures that have dropped by 20 degrees in the last few days. Um, but let's make very good use of the time. So tell us, who is Kasara Davidson? Oh my gosh, that question. Who is Kasara Davidson? Um, yeah, soy yo. That means I am, mm-hmm. I am me. You know, I am me. I am my parents' daughter. That's really important to me. Family is important to me. Uh, my father passed uh, 13 years ago. His birthday's mm-hmm. coming up soon. So that's that's a really important part of who I am, is being uh, my parents' daughter. I am a sister. I have three younger sisters and one older sister. Mm-hmm. Um, my first younger sister just had a baby a week ago today. Wow. So, and my older sister has three uh, children. um, And so I'm also an auntie. Mm -hmm. Um, I am, I'm a wander woman. That's a word that I I kind of, I don't know if I've I've read it somewhere, if I read pieces, you know, how you kind of see pieces of things in different places. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I like that. I'm a wander woman. In, in today, the term gypsy is not something, you know, that we're, that we're supposed to use because it does have de- negative connotations uh, to it. Uh, but that's, that's what I am. I'm, I move around. I don't have kind of one place where I live. And so I am a, um, I'm a wander woman 
entrepreneur and my passion in life really is um, is creating creating opportunities, mm-hmm. creating opportunities for myself and creating opportunities for others. And some of those opportunities are money. Money is really important. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I'm a businesswoman, uh, but it's about creating those opportunities for people to live the lives that they that they want to live. So, um, daughter, sister, auntie, wonder woman, um, entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, and um, and a wordsmith, a scribe. I love to write. That is what fuels me. That's what scares me. Really? I do a lot of what I do in an effort not to write. Um, but that is, that's, that's something that really uh, makes me excited, but it also scares me. Mm-hmm. So. so this is not where I expected to start, but I don't <laughs> know why I'm intrigued by the wordsmith piece. But when did you discover that, your love for writing? Since I don't remember a time where I haven't loved words. Words was probably my second or third tattoo wow. on my body. Uh, yeah, so um, I don't remember a time when I haven't loved words, haven't loved the idea of um, figuring out how to string together the perfect set of words so that I can describe how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Because every there's a saying in um, in Cuba that every every person is there is a different world. You know, like you never really know what's going on in someone else's head. And books and poems and literature for me are an effort to to express what's going on inside of one person and like have other people understand mm-hmm. that and that fascinates me and it excites me. So yeah, so I, I don't remember a time when I didn't love reading, when I didn't love uh, writing, writing down what's going on in my day, writing down what I'm feeling. But I also don't remember a time when it didn't scare me, when it wasn't mm-hmm. like, it's all, for me, it's always like birthing, like like giving birth. I mean, obviously it's not, but <laughs> it, it feels like that to me. Like it always feels like it's something that I want to do. I have to do. I'm made to do this. I, I love this, but but it it frightens me to think yeah. to just do that, you know? Do you think it frightens you because it is at its core something that's part of your purpose? Mm. Girl, where are we going? <laughs> oh, we, we can be real here on the December 2065 podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it frightens me because it's that real. Mm-hmm. I think it frightens me because once I actually commit to doing it, it's going to it's going to change a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I I know that I always wanted to be an attorney too, yeah. right? And so becoming an attorney, a lot of that was because that's words. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm dealing with words. And so that gave me an outlet to to work with words and to be creative. I, I find that I can be creative with words and to use words um, for good and use words for creation. So I, I use that as an outlet, but that's a very narrow outlet. Like I gave myself kind of a box, put myself in a box uh, to use those words, to use words. Um, but yeah, I, I, I know it's part of my purpose. And I will say like, Having you know read and you spoke to Demarcus and looking at your notes and everything, like I I kind of knew where I wanted to start this interview. Yeah. And then when you said words, <laughs> wordsmith, like the little hairs on my arms stood up. Did it? Like you know, and that's the thing that I didn't know coming into this, right? But when um, when those little things happen, 
that tells me that that is part of someone's DNA and what they've been put on the planet to do. Yeah. Um, so that's another tattoo. I don't yeah. know if we can see it. It's um, it's in Arabic. It means Maktub. Mm-hmm. Have you read the book The Alchemist? Yes. Okay. So mm-hmm. Maktub, meaning you know exactly what you said. When you're in a when you're in a moment and and in that moment you realize you're exactly you're always exactly where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But in that moment you feel it. You know yeah. you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And so and so yeah, like I am excited that you got to, that you got those tingles mm-hmm. when I said that because that that helps me to gain the encouragement and the motivation to you know keep moving mm-hmm. in that direction to keep to keep words and keep word wordsmithing and keep scribing within everything else that I'm doing mm-hmm. so we're going to get into the everything else yeah. um, <laughs> but let's like take me back you, you mentioned you know being a daughter and you mentioned your siblings and things so I take that to mean family is very important to you um so describe your upbringing Uh, you're just gonna be crying i'm a crier okay so so this show listen this is safe space we have people who cry on the show it happens even when we don't intend for it to happen it happens all right so it's okay if i cry you're free to be vulnerable all right that's a that's like that's a huge thing Mm -hmm. um no family is hugely hugely bigly (laughs) bigly important important no it's it's a big part of my life um my my mom is um my mom montez davidson Mm -hmm. she has sickle cell anemia Mm -hmm. i don't know if you know um your listeners know what that is but essentially what that means is that your your red blood cells which is what carries oxygen throughout your body and your body needs oxygen in order to live those cells carry the oxygen throughout your body sickle cell means um that the uh your red blood cells at times uh change shape Mm -hmm. and change shape from the circle into various other shapes that cannot pass easily through your bloodstream and so that means your body's not getting um, the oxygen that it needs your legs aren't getting it your organs aren't getting it and it creates extreme pain uh and it is a it has been in the past with a lot of new therapies and such now, but when my mom was young, it was, it was essentially kind of a death sentence mm-hmm. when she was finally diagnosed at a young age. And yet when she was very young, they thought she was just pretending because it's one of those diseases that people on the outside don't see it. Mm-hmm. So when she was finally diagnosed, um, she was given a very short time to live because that's, that's what it is. You know, your, your body doesn't get oxygen, you, you die. Uh, she was told she couldn't do what other kids could could do. You can't play. You can't. She was a dancer. You can't dance. You can't. You can't live a normal life. Certainly, you won't live into your twenties. Certainly, you shouldn't get married, and you definitely aren't going to be able to have children. Yeah. If you have children, if you try to, you're not going to be able to get pregnant. But if you get pregnant, you can't carry that child to term. And if you try to carry that child to term and then try to birth that child, everyone in that scenario is going to die. Mm. This is my mom's you know reality from doctors my um my grandma uh grandma williams leo williams my mom's mom she uh was a crazy crazy awesome woman Mm -hmm. and she wasn't gonna have that for her daughter and so she did not raise her daughter in fear she didn't raise her daughter um with any sort of perception that there was anything that she could not do that other people could do so my mom um, learned how to live with with the pain, to manage her pain, and to live the life that she wanted. 
So how does this respond to your question? It responds to your question because they told her she was going to die and that she could never have kids. She met my, um, she danced, she lived, she loved, she used to tell me that she would, when she would go out or she would, you know, go to dance classes, <laughs> she, she would have like, um, she would have people or she would immediately call the um, ambulance right after the activity, you know, because she was going to do what she needed to do. But then she knew she also had to go to the hospital to take care of her herself. So she meets my dad. She actually, my dad was a doctor. Mm -hmm. She meets my dad. Um, he was at Howard Med. She was at Howard undergrad. Wow. She had a sickle cell attack. She was in the hospital. He was her attending it's physician. Like a comedy. <laughs> she, it is, it is definitely a, a rom-com. She said she opened her eyes. So she's like all sick and, you know, like gross from being, you know, in the hospital. She opens her eyes and there's this beautiful man who's staring down at her. They lock eyes. They fall in love immediately. Wow. My dad um, uh, was a general practitioner. So family doctor for the doctor you go to whenever like you know you feel that something's going wrong with you that that first the, the, the first door doctor mm -hmm. but he was a um he too was a crazy man and he <laughs> he believed in um in the combination of Eastern and Western modalities. Mm -hmm. So he practiced alternative medicine before it was sexy. He was a acupuncturist before you could get licensed. Wow. So his perception of what it meant to be well and what it meant to be healthy was the perfect thing. That was what my mom was already doing in her life, eating to live, um, you know, living with purpose. Uh, thinking about your health as an everyday thing and not just when you're sick. Thinking about the symptoms of your illness as a sign as your body talking to you and not something that you need to mute and shut up yeah. so that, um, you know, you can just do what you want to do. So they they meet, they, um, and their union, through their union, they create a lifestyle that saved so many lives outside of their own, but also saved my mom. Wow. So when my mom got pregnant, when they got pregnant with me, all the doctors said, abort, 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 abort. Don't have this, you know, can't have this baby. It's going to kill. You're not going to be able to take her, you know, carry her to term. Don't, don't, uh, don't even try. Uh, and they wouldn't listen. And um, she, the story they always told me is that, you know, close to like maybe three months before I was uh, ready to come out, because I don't think I ever wanted to come out. I was quite comfortable <laughs> where it was. <laughs> a couple months before she had a really bad attack and she was in the hospital and they were still saying that you needed to abort. And they, um, they weren't going to listen. And my dad checked her out against doctor's wishes and they took a train to Miami and then a flight to Jamaica. Um, my dad always said that sunshine and salt water is all you need to be healthy. So they went out there and that, you know, relaxed everything that everyone was scared because they couldn't hear my, uh, my heartbeat. Mm -hmm. That's how bad the attack was. But I always say that it was because I was you know, I knew that crazy stuff was going on and I needed to conserve energy and I needed to, you know, like I knew, I knew what was happening. And, um, and, you know, to, to cut to the end, she, um, she birthed me. It was a C-section. Mm -hmm. She wasn't able to, to have, um, um, you know, vaginal birth. It was a C-section. Um, and one of the other crazy stories that she says is that her, her, the pain that she's used to is so grave that the labor pains 
were nothing wow. to her because she knew that the labor pains would stop eventually, uh, whereas the sickle cell pains kind of just go on. So she's in labor with me and she's not reacting the way most women react to the pain and they sort of like are like what's happening we don't even like are you in labor long story long she has me against all odds you know kind of like marital baby um and i was raised in so much love because my family is love but i was raised in so much love because it was kind of like all right they did this but this lady's still gonna die you know, this poor little girl, she's still going to die. So I was raised with my grandparents on both sides. I was raised with cousins and extended family and uh, just people always around because that's who my parents were. But also, I believe, because of the fear that this little girl wasn't going to have her mom. Um but I did. And she had three more babies. I was about to say, and then she had <laughs> your sibling. She had top three of more babies. Um, amazing. The irony of it is that, uh, you know, everybody's healthy. My dad, because of how he, how he lived. Um, but he was diagnosed in 2000. And uh, when did I start law school? I started law school in 2000. And I graduated in seven. So I started in four. So he was diagnosed in 2004 with um, small cell lung cancer, so non-smokers lung cancer. And everyone was devastated because it didn't make sense for like the village doctor, the person that made everyone well to get sick. Mm -hmm. um, they gave him six months because it's a very rapid disease. And, but he lived for two years wow. because his body was so healthy and because he had so much love around him. And so I was raised to think my mom was gonna be the one that died. Mm -hmm. You know, so my mom, my dad. So that was hard. Um, and he, he died. I graduated in 07. He died in 06. Um, and in that time span, from 04 to 10, my dad, maternal grandmother, my paternal grandmother, my paternal grandfather, um, aunts that were very significant to me all died in the like four years um and I joke and say that uh, oh gosh I joke and say that everyone died in a plane crash because it's just easier to say that way but so much of my family died in such a uh, I'm sorry it's okay <laughs> while I was going to law school. <laughs> and that, that's an important context, right? Because as someone who has gone to law school, for people who don't understand how law school works, it is all consuming and it is very much on a schedule. Like you don't just go to law school and like study and get out and find a job, right? And like the whole finding, okay, what are you gonna do for your first summer? And then first of all, let's back up. Those 1L grades <laughs> to be able to get your summer associateship. So that's really important the first year, your 1L year. You're trying to like get through the core classes that you have to take, get your grades right because you enter interviewing, right? Or trying to figure out if you're gonna be a clerk, clerk the first year or whatever. Like, so you're trying to figure that out. Yes. And then also those are the grades you're gonna turn over when you come back and start to interview for your 2L summer. Yes. So then that's that's a whole thing, right? So you're trying to get your 2L summer thing together. Mm. 
then two L year, you're like, all right, am I going to do a journal? Like what's going to happen here? Right. So then you're preparing for that and also trying to keep your grades up because you have to turn them in to wherever you go to summer. Yes. And then the summer is, yes, you're making great money, but like you have to focus, right? So you do whatever they tell you to do. Like you're building your hours and there's all these events and like everything you have to do to make a good impression and folks, right? Back then it was like wherever you went for your two L, that's where you're going to work, right? So you're figuring that out. And then three all year, you're doing whatever you're doing, right? Hopefully you have a job locked down, but it's like a mock trial, moot court, you know, all those things that happen. If you've gotten on a journal, you're writing for your journal. So for those, that's like <laughs> law school 101, like a very high level. So interestingly, if anybody has like followed us and the show and everything we do, one of the things that I talked about is losing my grandmother, my, my, my third, my three L year, which upended my life in my final semester of law school when it mattered the least, right? Because at that point, you've kind of got things locked exactly. down. But you were dealing with this throughout. Your yeah. father's being ill and then losing him and losing all of these, um, these other family members. How did you cope? I thought... I did well. What I said to myself was that I'm going to take the intelligence. I'm going to take my intelligence and that is what I'm going to focus on because if I focus on anything else, I'm not coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I focus on a cry or a tear or like what's actually happening right now, I'm not going to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really how I felt. And, and school and education um, for formal education, because there's education in many ways, but formal education is really important in my family, both sides of my family. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to be um, a student like I've never been before. This is where I'm going to focus. Uh, I'm in D.C. My family's in New York. My dad's going, you know, to his chemo sessions um, while I'm going to class. And so my coping was just to not to block it out, but just to to focus on something that I knew he that was important to him mm-hmm. and that I could that I could do something about because these other things I couldn't do anything about. And something else that I had noticed was that every time something good happened, there was a bad thing. So mm-hmm. when I um I bought my first place in uh, the first place ever that I bought was in DC and I decided to purchase it because I was going to be there for three years and it was you know 2004 mm-hmm. right before you know the bubble burst and it was perfect time to buy so um I I, I bought my place but bef- oh no before that the the date that I received the date on my acceptance letter to Howard was the same day that my my grandmother my mom's died my mom's died same day the time span that I decided to for that I found the property I was purchased like in that month when I was signing was the month my dad was diagnosed um you know I when I found out <laughs> many things in between that when you know when I uh many things like when my grand when my father's mother died while I was in law school um and many of us believe that that happened because she wasn't going to let her child die before her. Um, I had gotten my um, summer job, my two year. When I passed the bar, I was upstairs um, in uh, in my bedroom and I, and I was looking and I passed the bar. And two minutes later, my mom calls me upstairs and tells me that my grandma. Um, died. So I didn't know how to be happy. And I knew how to succeed. Um, that I didn't want to be happy. Mm-hmm. 
because every time I did what I felt like I was supposed to do, it wasn't just something, it was people dying. And it can, you know, and it, and it continued. Um, and like I said, I thought that I was coping and I thought that I did well. And I, and I think I would probably do it the same way because I might not have gotten out of law school if I hadn't focused. But um, when I, but I was so not present. When I graduated from law school, I graduated um, and these sorts of things are not significant to me in the way that um, maybe they are to other people. But I graduated uh, third in my class, but I didn't know that until they called our names to line up because I wasn't, I was literally just focused on getting the work done and trying to be the, the daughter that, you know, that I felt that, um, that, I, that I should be, do what I could do. So how did I cope? I don't know. I, maybe I, I use school as like a drug. I use the, su- the success as a drug. Get into, you're in the top 15%, you know, top 15%. You go to a law firm. You go to a big law firm. This is what you're supposed to do. Okay, so give me that roadmap. I'm going to do it. I know my, da- my dad's transitioning. And there's going to, you know, we're going to money in the house. Let me eat that person. And, you know, interest. another piece of like context I want to add here is... I remember going to Howard's Law Library to study, like during exams and stuff. We'd skip over from and, where, and you were at. So I was at GW. You were at GW. 06 okay. was my one L year. So as you were <sighs> finishing up, I was starting. Um, and then you know to 09. And I had um a couple of friends who were grad students as well, um, mm-hmm. across the city. And we were friends pre uh pre law school and pre-graduate school. So we were we were like, let's go to Howard, you know, Howard's library because we just want to be around black folks, we want to be around our energy, <laughs> right? Our own energy. And I will never forget, like, going to study at Howard Law one night and the students, it was like the anxiety was ratcheted up, right? Like, way worse than what I was used to at GW Law. And I remember, like, just kind of, they were, you know, they don't, they see people they don't know. So you start talking mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, do you have a, you know, an outline for comma? I'm like, yeah, I can, like, send you that. That's fine. And I'm like, like, it's, you do, and you can see, like, people literally on the edge, like, teetering. I'm like, you do know it's going to be okay, right? <laughs> And then what I learned through those conversations was like, they're like, no, they will fail us. Like, do you know, we didn't really have that. Like, you know, you had your curve and like, you'd be okay. Right. The worst, the worst that would happen is your grades would not be great. And it might jeopardize your prospects in terms of career, but you would not fail. And I talked to the students at Howard and they were like, no, like they don't play that here. Like, I'll be there. <laughs> Like, you're, you will be out. They like, will, yeah. And that is what Howard <laughs> Law was known for. Like, really, like, no, no, you're going to compete and you're going to compete well. And if you can't cut it, you don't get a gentleman's seat here. Like, that's it. And when I realized that that was what was going on at Howard, I was like, okay, this is a different situation. So I just wanted to add that a bit of color because a lot of people from law school, like, if you have a class where you're like, I'm not going to make it. Like, I'm just going to take the C. That's literally what people say. And at Howard, there's no taking. So not only to pass, but to graduate third in your class while dealing with a lot of trauma is pretty unbelievable. As someone who has gone to law school, that is unbelievable. Thank you. That That is that is something to, whether it was a coping mechanism or a drug or whatever, that's something to be commended, which speaks to um, resiliency, right? And, and I, I do... I'm really going left now. But I'm wondering if you've given yourself time to grieve that, you know, all of those experiences, right? No. And that's the, and that's the, that's the piece, mm-hmm. right? Is that I, I thought that grieving, that I wouldn't come out of grieving. Mm-hmm. 
And so I didn't allow myself the time to grieve, Mm -hmm. but um, it's a part of life. And just like anything else, if you don't create the time for it, it's going to create the time for it. And so what ultimately happened for me is that my grief manifested itself in other ways Mm -hmm. so I um you know I did well in school I was on journal and I did this and I was fortunate enough to be able to travel and I made connections and I had a wonderful job after law school um but I also gained um I think my my highest weight was 210 pounds really <laughs> 210 pounds. And one of the last things my dad said to me, and not in a mean way, but the last one of the last things he expressed to me was his concern about helping. I was getting because it was unhealthy and because I'm I have a small frame and I've always been an athlete and so to have for all and all of that was you know was fat it wasn't like it was um, even muscle mass underneath it like it was just pure (laughs) fat and I was really unhealthy and so that's where my grief uh, manifested itself was in the weight gain and then um I I was, and I think this is an important piece to talk about because uh, even though it's changing for Black folks talking about mental health and all of that, you know, we're talking about it more. I think it's still something we don't talk about in our communities enough. Um, My grief also manifested in uncovering, uncovering mental health concerns that I had that I didn't know that I had that are genetic, (laughs) but that um, we, the family members and myself created coping mechanisms, not knowing they were coping mechanisms to get through things, but created coping mechanisms. And my trauma stripped me of those coping mechanisms. And now I was kind of like floundering. So um, as an adult, I was diagnosed with um, ADHD. Mm -hmm. Makes so much sense now with you know my past my past self but um essentially all of my trauma and not grieving that the trauma of not grieving took away what I didn't know were coping mechanisms and now I was kind of like grasping trying to figure out why can't I focus why can't I um do you know do things with the ease in which I had done them in the past and then feeling bad and depressed Mm -hmm. about not being able to be that person that I thought I just was kind of organically um you know, and then going and, and looking for therapists and looking for doctors and looking for prescriptions and like just, you know, in all of everything else that's going on, trying to maintain, um, you know, this wonderful, successful career. Also trying to figure out how I'm not going to just be a crazy person because lawyers, I mean, statistically, right? Like lawyers are some of the most heaviest drinkers, mm-hmm. heaviest drug users because of the anxiety of our profession. And I knew that I wasn't going to allow that to happen to me, but I needed to figure out how I was going to repair Mm -hmm. myself. Um, Yeah. So where were you in your career when you got the, when you're like, I've got to figure this out. I got to see what's going on here. And you got the ADHD diagnosis. So I graduated in seven and I guess it was around I think it was maybe an, an eight. It wasn't really that far in. So you're I like realized. first year, first year associate. When you're not supposed to be crazy. Yeah, like 
white shoe firm all about the billable hour and it's a weird time because everything's changing yeah like Mm -hmm. you know before the great recession Mm -hmm. it was like you came out of law school you took your 160 or 150 whatever it was like you made your money you made your yeah those days remember those days you build your hours and that was it Uh uh-huh but like because we were dealing with the whole and i've spoken about it on the show because offers getting yanked Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so we were dealing with that like you thought you had an offer and these firms being like actually go do pro bono for a year we're deferring you that and that happened to a lot of people Mm -hmm. that were coming out in your yes in your space Mm -hmm. because that's straddling they're still trying to figure out what's going on well they know what's going on but they're trying not the law firms are trying to give off the impression that their firm is okay yeah so they're trying to do all these different things so that the message is well we're okay but we're the you know we're going to ask our incoming class just to do pro bono or just to do this but after they do pro bono a lot of those people didn't have jobs right to come back to like it which changed it changed people's like whole career trajectory like i have friends who had dreams of living on the upper east side working at a huge firm corporate law white collar all that great stuff and ended up being like ada or like or in doctor or whatever just like nothing that they were passionate about or interested Mm -hmm. in but it was what was available correct um so you're in your career though but it's still a shaky time and what practice area were you in so i so i was i say that the work that i did is what is the work that broke the world i was private equity Uh, it was an acquisition so So you were like in it right literally the work in it that was leveraged Yes. So everybody knows that like when you start in that first job at a white shoe firm, that is your singular focus, right? This is, you You, you live at the office. You you literally <laughs> bill your dinner because you're there. Exactly. And you're struggling with an inability to use your coping mechanisms mm-hmm. that you had had that had helped you get to this point. Correct. Correct. What was your state of mind or your emotional state at that point? Because it, it's people who don't know what this is like, like it's it's cutthroat. <laughs> I was I was depressed mm-hmm. like I'd never been before. I was and I had so many reasons to be depressed. So then there's also this like, you know, people, there's um people don't really understand that it's more serious mm-hmm. than it actually is because how I'm feeling sad is a normal response to all the stuff that's going on. Um, I'm not a talker or I hadn't been a talker about my feelings. So I wasn't like, you know, talking about them to people. So it was a very lonely time. Um, And then, you know, and then there's my mom and my sisters who were going through their grief. My mom never, she was supposed to die. But then everybody else dies. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of like, what the, what the, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm my one first word. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she's kind of like, all this. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to watch people die. So like in my mom's life, so I'm watching her go through all this stuff. I mean, I'm just, I just felt, I think I actually stopped feeling. Mm-hmm. I was just like, right after my dad died, um, I uh, actually didn't talk for, <laughs> I think for about a month. Mm-hmm. I only wrote things down. Like I just, I didn't, I didn't want to talk. I, um, at the law firm, I took uh, FEMLA, mm-hmm. um, family medical leave. So you chose to leave at the start of your career. I chose to leave. So I was at the law firm from seven to 10 only. Mm-hmm. And like, so in the middle of that, you know, two and a half, three years, I said, I need 
a moment. Like, y'all are not gonna kill me and I'm not gonna allow myself to kill myself. And to be honest with you, I don't remember everything that I did <laughs> in that time, but I read a lot. Um, I, uh, I did go to see a therapist. That was when I was diagnosed. Um, and those were the first steps to putting myself back together, mm -hmm. to figuring out, putting myself back together. And then also accepting that, you know, it's another, one of my tattoos is that everything changes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'm not going to be the person that I was. I need to be happy and excited about that. And I need to be willing, you know, I need to accept that whoever I put myself together to be moving forward is going to be different. It might not be the same coping, you know, mechanisms or, um, but it's going to be something just as grand, just as great. I just need to keep, blah, 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 is what we say, mm -hmm. you know, little by little, step by step. I just need to make that commitment each day. So it was the, and it was a scary choice to say in the middle of the craziness and affirm, like, I'm out and I'm going to take the full time. Now I remember it was months. It was like maybe three months, four months. Um, and because it's a place where they had the resources, I could also get paid mm -hmm. uh, while I'm off. Some people where they work, they take FEMLA, but they're, you know, they're not getting paid. And so I was paid and it was the first time we were talking earlier about that, that piece of the blood in your family where you're like, I'm out. This is not, yes. <laughs> it's not healthy for me. I'm going to leave. I had never really done that. And that was the first time. And so that was the first step. And that was the time when, when I was diagnosed and it was a game changer. Mm -hmm. It was a game changer. I didn't start taking, um, uh, Adderall uh, at that time, but um, because I kind of just wanted to see, you know, uh, what was going on and what, what this meant and what I could do, but just realizing that what was happening with me was not just me crazy or being just sad or me, whatever. Like, there was something going on and that trauma can unearth things within people that they did not know existed. And once I once I got the diagnosis and started talking about it with, with my family and like great aunts and stuff, they're like, they won't use those terms. But when they start describing people in in our family and and you know, fortunately, I come from a very intelligent family, people that test on genius levels. But because of that, there's also this perspective that therefore there can be nothing else wrong with you. But when I hear these stories about these people who are doctors and, and lawyers and, and, you know, and professors and PhDs, but who also can't sit still or, you know, who have to create routine in their day in order to get stuff done, it was like, all right, you know, I can... It's okay. Mm -hmm. I can figure this out. So you go out on FMLA. Mm -hmm. You start to, I won't even say piece your life back together because it sounds like it's creating a new normal for a lot of reasons, which right. is requirement when you lose people that are close to you, number one, and then also dealing with the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Did you decide at that point that I don't think I want to be a, a full-time lawyer in the traditional sense? <laughs> I had like that tingling feeling that we were talking about earlier the moment I got to the law firm. Because, because I'm laughing because I, I know. did you have I, the tingling I, feeling too? You're like, this is not what I thought I was signing no. up for, and I'm not gonna be able to like play the role. No. Yeah, I don't know what I thought it was gonna be. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't know. I thought it was gonna be like 
I don't know. I thought like intellectual people talking and and like being. I don't like to use the. I just have smart to refer to people because I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's rude, but like people talking about stuff and like building and 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 creating information. And that's not what it was. It was. It was like angry people who actually don't want to be there, but they're making a lot of money. And so they're there. And like, maybe at one point they liked what they did, but they're, they don't like it, but they make money. And and once you've worn a groove into something, it's very hard to get out of that groove. Someone told me a long time ago, you know, if you're, when you're in a career to determine if you want to stay there, look above you. And if, um, in terms of employment, and if the people above you are doing what you want to do and they're happy and they have the lifestyle you want, then, then you know, continue. But if not, then that's not where you want to be. And I looked above me and I was like, these folks are miserable. Like, why would I stay there? So that was an, an, an immediate mm-hmm. uh, perspective. But then definitely after FIMLA um, and after taking that time for myself, it was like, all right. And then, so then that would move us into eight which is when the Great Recession mm-hmm. uh, sort of, you know, gets boiling, right? And so as a private equity mergers and, mergers and acquisitions attorney, they roll a lot of us onto bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So not only did I do the work, I broke the world. Now I'm doing all of the, you know, all of the bankruptcy, Lehman, Godiva, mm-hmm. you know, all of the all of the ones that you read in the newspaper, I'm working on those deals and I'm just like, this can't be... This can't be what I've been putting here to do. Um, And then, um, so my first job, I went to University of Virginia undergrad. Mm -hmm. My first job out of undergrad was with, um, as a business consultant with a firm called Arthur Anderson. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was 2000. And I believe Enron was 2001. So you've had the journey. Exactly. (laughs) So I realized that, um, Every every time, two times, the two times that I went into large firms, the work that I did, and not just the work that I did, but the firm that I where I was was in a big way. I mean, Arthur Anderson clearly mm-hmm. was a part of it, but in a big way was a part of so much trauma mm-hmm. and fear and destruction in uh, in the world regarding money and regarding resources. Like I am in places that are right in the middle (laughs) of it. That's gotta mean something. I have to pay attention to that. So maybe I'm just not supposed to be in large firms. Maybe I'm supposed to be doing something. So I'm a big, I'm a firm believer in the feelings and the signs and paying attention to what, you know, what I'm being told. And so there's a quote, um, I can't remember what it is. It's something like everything that, anything that happens once may happen a second time. And anything that happens twice will surely happen again. Some, it's something like that, something to that effect. But it's like, it's not going to happen a third time for me. I'm not, I get it. I'm gone. <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, and so, so yeah, so like I negotiated my way out of there. Um, I had just found an apartment in New York. So I had my house in, uh, in DC that I was renting out. I had my apartment that I had just found because before FIMLA, I hadn't decided that I was going to leave. Mm-hmm. So I, I had uh, been looking for an apartment. So I found an apartment. I put down on a two-year lease and I come back and I'm like, this is, I've got to do something different. Um, so I negotiated my way out. 
um, which is why you don't hear me talking about names of firms and blah. Which we blah. never, we never <laughs> mention people's former employers or current employers unless they choose to on this show. Trust me, yes, I you it. understand yes. it. You're a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You get it. Um, so yeah, so I I left and um, you know I started exercising more heavily and I started eating better. Um, I started, uh, I put up my shingle for lack of a better word. You know, I, I, I had, um, small business clients because business law is something that's very you know important to me. I think business is a, is an important concept that, um, business can be used for different things than what it is yeah. now. So, you know, I had, I had, uh, I had my own clients and worked with nonprofits and startup businesses. Um, and then I actually went into business with my mom, mm-hmm. um, to, f- uh, follow up and, um, complete work that she had been doing with my dad. Um, she has a natural food and beverage manufacturing company. And before my dad died, he found an investor. And so I worked with her with that, which is always crazy, as you know, working with family. Yes. So that was a little bit of trauma. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I just, but in that time, I mean, I'm doing stuff, but I'm still very, de- I'm still depressed. Mm-hmm. I'm still depressed. I'm still physically unhealthy. I'm still really, really you know, big. Um, and I was kind of like going around in circles. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was, um, and I was angry mm-hmm. and I was grieving and I said, I still wasn't allowing myself to grieve properly, but I knew that I needed to keep going forward. Right. So, you know, if I would, I have this thing where if I would wake up and I would wake up and I'd just wake up to negative thoughts in my head about what I have to do that day or what I hadn't done the next day or, you know, what, uh, blah, 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 all the stuff, right? All the negative stuff. I promised myself that I wasn't going to get out of bed until, until those thoughts changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I had to, I began to live myself, my life much more intentionally, which felt weird because I'd grown up being given so much love and given and being around so much positive energy that I thought (laughs) that it was kind of, I I didn't know what it felt like Mm -hmm. to have low low self-esteem. I didn't know what it felt like. I'd seen it on other people. I didn't know what it actually felt like. And it felt much worse than it looks like it feels on other people. So, uh, but I knew I wasn't going to stay there. Mm-hmm. So I just kept, I don't know, I just kept moving forward and trying, you know, and trying new things and, and arguing, arguing with my boyfriend, arguing with my mom, <laughs> with my sisters and, um, and, and exercising and eating. And, you know, I would lose weight and I would gain weight and like it, nothing, it just, everything felt like it was, um, it felt like it was for, it felt like it was for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, because yep. when you're not getting what you want immediately, it just felt like it was for nothing. Um, but maybe three years ago, um, I realized something. I realized that because I was I, I was mad. I was mad that I had been given so much love and so much perspective and a way of viewing the world that I realized other people hadn't been given. Like I, I'd been given so much to to work with. And I felt like it was all stripped mm-hmm. away from me. And then I realized, I don't know how it came to me, but I was like, you know what? This is, I was given tools and here's the project. I was given all of this self-love, not so I could just sit around and love myself, 
without adversity. I was given it so that I could use it in the moments when it was hard. Yeah. I was given perspective of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a Black woman. Not so that it was just, you know, easier for me than other people who didn't have it, but so that when it was time to use that sword or use that tool, I had it. Mm-hmm. I was still angry that I had to use it, but I realized it just made me look at it differently. You know, yeah. it made me look at what was happening to me as less of like a, a being deprived of something or things being taken away from me. And it, it, it helped me to see it as the opportunity to use everything that was given to me mm-hmm. by my family. Um, and so that's what I did. And, you know, fast forward through all types of, I'm uh, not a big dieter, but like all types of uh, exercise programs to, you know, lose weight and feel better. And all types of, um, you know, am I going to go to grad school? Am I going to do this? What am I going to do? What's my next step? You know, fast forward through all of that. Um, in 2014, when Obama and Castro decided that our two countries were going to do something different and play nice, I said, all right, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. I don't know how. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I want to uh, start a business. And it, wouldn't, and it wasn't my first business, you know, mm-hmm. starting. I started many businesses before I was that kid that, you know, sold lemonade <laughs> on the corner I've always had. Uh, some sort of business, but yeah, you know, I was just, I knew before that announcement, everything that I was doing was to stay awake. Wow. You know, to stay, to stay aware because I, I, I believe, I know that part of, um, part of what makes it difficult to be human is that we want what we want when we want it. And if it's not here, in that moment, we get disillusioned. Mm-hmm. And so I decided my, or I realized my job was not to know the house. How am I going to get here? How am I going to reach this goal? My, my job was to determine what my goals were and those they might change, right? Sure. Be flexible, but to determine that and just keep, keep doing stuff, keep moving, keep to stay awake. Because when that when the sun the sun comes up tomorrow, when the when the when the thing happens, when that opportunity presents itself, be prepared, be able to participate mm-hmm. in that opportunity versus um, unable to, like with the covers over your head, sad and crying because there hadn't been opportunity up until that point. So this you have a light bulb moment, right? You're like, I want to be in on this. The tide is shifting in terms of U.S.-Cuba relationships. How did you go from that <laughs> to now someone who literally is splitting her time between Cuba and the U.S.? Yeah. Um, I don't know. People ask, me, people ask me that question. And when I decided, when I realized that it wasn't my job to figure out the house it's kind of like something I just I just move forward mm-hmm. you know um the thing that really brought me out of my uh the darkest points was when I, I decided I wanted to uh, go and get a PhD in either anthropology or sociology so I decided and so I had to study for the GREs I'm not um I haven't historically been a great standardized testing mm-hmm. so studying 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 and that's what that's kind of what like fueled me and woke me up again. And um, and so 
that helped me to create routine, you know, get up at this time and to do this and to kind of, you know, put my life back into routine um, pieces or moments of routine throughout my day. And so when I when I decided in the end of 14, because it was what, December 17th, 2014, I just, I went, um, I drove to Louisiana. Um, can't remember why. I think because I was going to Cuba. When I came back, I had, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Delta, I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And so there was a, a young woman who we went to different schools, different chapters, such as different chapters, but we were close when we were young and we had kept in contact on Facebook. And she was also an attorney. And I also knew that she had, a, and she, her family was from Louisiana, like mine. And I knew she had a relationship with Cuba. And so I decided, you know, let me go and talk to her and kind of see if this is something she'd be interested in mm-hmm. too. And so we talked about it and um, we decided we were gonna move forward with with something, some business. Um, I realized that it was business is what's important is what excites me, uh, trade and commerce. Mm-hmm. But I, it's also important for me not to uh, to enter into community to enter into community uh, with a decolonized mindset. Mm-hmm. And so, if I want to do business someplace. I want to enter that place or if I want to learn about the commercial activities of that place, I want to enter that place from uh, from a space within me of respect and of curiosity of what already exists there. Mm-hmm. And not as someone that's coming in and saying, well, these are my ideas and this works in my country. And so it's going to work there. Right. And so I decided, we decided we're no longer partners mm-hmm. now, but uh, that we were going to start with programming creating programs for people from the United States, creating them in Cuba, because that would give us an opportunity to better learn the island mm-hmm. and, uh, um, you know, create the network further, because I'd been traveling there for 10 years, further uh, broaden my network that I already had by creating these activities and programs for other people. And then that would also create, you know, begin the branding and the marketing in the United States about what it is that I'm able to do. And then I can build from there. And so it's just kind of, it's been, uh, that's been the process, like just deciding what I want to do um, based on what I see is happening and then just start <laughs> doing it and, and, and see what actually happens mm-hmm. compare it to what I thought was going to happen. And then, um, and then shift course if I need to. And we have seen with this current administration in my mom's house, we're not allowed to uh, to say his name. We don't we don't reference his <laughs> yeah, name my name either around these parts. <laughs> we're allowed to call him 45. So <laughs> the current administration um, has made a lot of um, changes. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like every six months, there's a significant change that affects my, that directly affects my business. Now the changes he makes affect Cuba and the Cuban economy and the Cuban people far worse Mm -hmm. than how my business is affected. Um, But what he, but what that administration does, it, it creates, it creates a world of fear Mm -hmm. and concern and worry. So every six months I have to um, re-educate the population sure. about can you go to Cuba, how you can go to Cuba. And so that's been a big, um, that's been an obstacle and a hurdle and all of that. Uh, 
but you know, at the same time, um, it's, it's just at the same time I still get to work yeah. on an island. You know, at the same time I still get to uh, get to create opportunities for 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 Black people, for all people. Um, but we do have a particular focus on Black and Indigenous communities mm-hmm. uh, in the Americas, Black and Indigenous communities in America, and uh, sustainable travel and social enterprise are our primary primary focuses um but to be able to create opportunities for black folks to see black folks mm-hmm. in other countries is just and to be able to get paid for that absolutely is amazing absolutely <laughs> so your brand now is diaspora travel, travel and, and trade, trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kinds of experiences are you giving now? So you curating trips, I, I presume, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then is it in, I know, because I've done one of these trips with another company. We won't say which company on here. <laughs> um, but they're highly curated, right? Mm-hmm. So um, getting opportunities is basically all done for you. Like yeah. you just got to get on the, the plane, which is someone who is responsible for so much mm-hmm. in my everyday life. Many people <laughs> like me is that feeling of like being able to turn over that experience to someone else to create mm-hmm. for me is that the same thing that you're offering where people can come to you and say this is what i want to do i want to go to cuba and um, i want to experience cuba in a very real way with a trip that's been curated by someone who looks like me um, and you make that happen is that an accurate assessment that is an accurate mm-hmm. assessment and we will do we will curate that's the word that mm-hmm. we use mm-hmm. i love that word we will curate um what our clients are looking for so yeah. as much or as little as you're for if you want to if all you need is you know for us to recommend places for you to go we can do that if all you need is for us to uh make sure that you have one activity a day or this particular activity every single day we can do that if all you need is you know the house in a particular area and you need to have access um to bilingual um, program guide so that you don't feel like you're there on your own, we'll do that. If you want us to put together the entire program, we'll do that. Uh, we work with colleges, universities, um, high schools, individual travelers, journalists, um, authors, photographers. We work with uh, groups of people, people that are going down to celebrate 50th anniversary or, you know, um, sororities or fraternity uh, chapters or lines that are going down. Uh, We work with businesses that are interested in learning about the landscape of Cuba and be interested in becoming uh, prepared for when U.S., because it's it's coming, for when U.S. businesses can more freely um, uh, operate in Cuba. And we organize activities here in the United States about uh, Cuba. Um, We create... um, materials, uh, you know, presentations. I do a lot of presentations. I do a lot of speaking. So really it's, it's, it's whatever issues or whatever problem or whatever idea that our client has, we will respond to that. We will resolve that problem or we will, um, you know, create the, create the project that they need to, to meet the goals that they've stated. We have 
annual programs, uh, diaspora signature programs, we call them. For instance, this past trip, there was the fitness program. And so that's a program that's already curated. People can join on to that. Um, you can come with five or six people. You can come on your own and you're meeting other people that are doing the same. Or you can come to me on your own and we create something specifically for you. Um, or you look on our website and there's something that you, you've seen that someone else has done and you want to pick that and we can put that together for you, for you as well. We The difference <laughs> that I like to our value added is that it's not a field trip. Mm-hmm. And so even though it's highly curated because it has to be by law, by U.S. law, mm-hmm. not Cuban law. And so I want to just, I know, I know, you know, Bart, we have to be aware of time, but I do want to get into just kind of the legal aspect of it very quickly after this point. It's the U.S. laws that is the reason why it has to be highly curated. But even though it has to be highly curated, it's not a field trip, at least with mm-hmm. us. When we're there, we're in community. We're having a wonderful time. We go with the flow because in Cuba, you have to go where, I mean, if, you know, there have been times where we've had students down there and the bus breaks down because it's the resources of the country. And so we might have to pivot here or there. And, um, but the thing, and, and all of the activities that we put together, because I believe in opportunity, all of the activities are things that are created with, through the network of my friends and family. So when we have dance classes, or we go to tobacco farms, or we go um, to farms to have a, you know, a farm to table fresh food lunch. These are spaces and workers and owners that are productive of my network. Because any money that I'm creating, any opportunity I'm creating, my the purpose of my business is to pass that forward. And so because it's coming from my my circle of friends and family and not from like some website or agency, all activities have a familiar and familial, I think I always get this word wrong, familial aspect to it, you know, where we're following the law, but we're hanging out and we're having a good time. Mm -hmm. And when I'm curating specifically for what people have asked for, I listen to what they say it is that they're looking for. And I find I, I I find exactly what it is that they're interested in. And then even more, because a lot of times people don't know what's possible. Sure. So they'll hold back on what they want. And so I say, okay, let's just pretend sky's the limit. Money's not an issue. What are we looking for? And then I look to find that within, you know, within their budget. So what percentage of the year are you spending abroad at this point? Um, I'm back and forth, but I'm about... 2019, I was, I say a quarter, but I was probably half of the year in Cuba. Um, So I'll go for a month or two months and then I'll come back for a couple of weeks and then I'll go again and then I'll come back. And a lot of that has to do with, so I'll have a, I'll have a program Mm -hmm. that spans, um, you know, a week or 10 days. And then obviously I have to come a couple of days before that program and a couple of days after. Mm -hmm. That would be a normal person. That's it. Then you go back home. But I stay there longer because then I have meetings. I have other things. I'm creating other opportunities for the next for the next trip. My goal in 2020 is actually to have my base of operations in Havana. Wow. That's the goal because I, you know, we're going to be moving into other parts 
excuse me, of the Caribbean and Latin America, mm-hmm. excuse me. And so, um, and so I just think one, I, I just, you know, want to spend that much time there. And two, I just think it would be awesome and, and adds a different sort of legitimacy to be working out of one of the places, you know, that I've been saying uh, that I have a relationship with. Absolutely. So I feel like your whole story has been an answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I mean, you know, as a woman, as a Black woman, um, as a Black person, that's the theme of our life. Whether it's fair or not, that's the theme of our life is that uh, 200% when other people are given 100% or right. 50%. Or 50% yes. Yeah, they're getting the C's, right? We've got to give that much more. Um, and so uh, on an ordinary day, I think... Um, an example. An example is is being in Havana mm-hmm. and being in Havana when um, this administration has made some ridiculous change, <laughs> stopping the cruise ships mm-hmm. or preventing people from being able to send money to their relatives and being able to maintain um, maintain my sanity mm-hmm. as a Black woman, as a Black woman from the United States in this different space um, and not become overwhelmed yeah this last trip i knew that i could send money to myself because of the laws but was but one of the uh, none of the money transfer services feel comfortable yet mm. in transferring money other than to family members this is just an ordinary day where kasar is not able to access any of her yeah. money in the united states in a country that um you know i And what do I do? You know, I've got to just, I've got to just be there. I've got to, all right. I try to live as if I'm in Cuba when Mm -hmm. I'm there anyway, but you know, I'm not going to stress out. I'm not going to go back to that old person who wasn't sleeping and wasn't stressing and who wasn't, you know, I'm sorry, who wasn't sleeping and who was stressing and who needed now. All right. We're just gonna, what do we need to do today? Let's get that done. What do we need to do tomorrow? Like that's for me, that's the extraordinary piece. Yes not beating myself up and deciding that I'm going to have joy no matter what is happening around me. And for people who don't know, there's no like just going to the ATM like you would in Europe or other places and pulling money out of a U.S. bank account. I just want to add that. Thank that piece you. For yes, like, there is none. There is for U.S. people, that is not an option that we have. The Cuban, the U.S. embargo against Cuba is not one law. It's seven or eight pieces of federal legislation. And inside of those of that legislation um, are are the directives, the the, the rules that tell us that what we can and cannot do with regard to trade with Cuba. And it has been for over 50 years and it's been um, a, a horrible position that it puts the Cuban people and the Cuban government in. And one of the things that it prevents us from doing is the transactions necessary to travel. 
Yeah. People think we can't travel, but as you know, as an attorney, that would be unconstitutional. You can't tell me what I can do with my person. But they can tell us that we can't buy an airplane ticket or we can't buy food or we can't, uh, you know, rent a house. That is what is the actual law, that we cannot interact um, business-wise, transactional-wise with Cuba. However, there are 12 exceptions to that general rule. And those are the 12 licensable reasons that we can go as a journalist, to visit family, um, to go um, if you are for for support for the Cuban people, which is now what uh, we use uh, if you're going for educational purposes to get um, to get credit. And then I got those like four. So there's um, there's eight uh, other general licensable reasons. And those that's the U.S. general license. There's nothing that you need to do in order to get that license because it's not a specific license like it was in the past. Now it's on your honor. You simply have to follow the rules and you could be audited by OFAC in the future. And if you don't have the proof, the receipts, the schedule of what you've done, then you could have to pay a hefty fine, which is why businesses like mine exist in order to create uh, the activities so that you're meeting you know, the standards of the legislation. The other piece is the Cuban visa, mm-hmm. which is completely different. People get those two things confused. The Cuban visa is just the visa that you need in order to enter Cuba. That's just... A monetary transaction, you pay for it, you get your visa, it's a tourist visa, you go. Any of the any of the concerns and issues about traveling to Cuba, they're not Cuban regulations. Mm-hmm. When you get to Cuba, the Cubans are not concerned about what you're doing there. Yeah. It's US regulations that are the thing that you know create the problems for us traveling. I could go on a, yes, a rant so there, much. but I'm, I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna leave it there. Um, so 2020, yes. what's on the horizon for Kassara and Diaspora Travel and Trade? 2020, I'm so excited. We're all like 2020 is um, so we're bringing uh, my high school. Trinity School. Really? Mm-hmm. I did a, a an exploratory delegation in 2019 with uh, the director of the travel department, and um, she loved it. She was actually my English teacher when I was in high school. She loved it. She's so amazing, uh, and and she's created the opportunity for me to for my company to be the uh, organization that brings the students wow. to Cuba. And so the idea is to institutionalize that, and then we're doing that every year for them. And then I found out this year through reconnecting with her is that all the private schools in the city in New York have travel departments mm-hmm. for their students. They didn't have that when we were young. They all have it's a different ballgame now. Yes. Different ballgame. All have travel departments. And all of those travel departments, um, at least the ones that we've discussed, have a commitment to ensuring that all students have the ability to travel, not just the students that can financially, you know, their parents can pay for them to do it, that that it's created so that everyone gets to travel. So the idea is, you know, to to work within Trinity um, and then to create a network in the other private schools in the city. So that's one piece of what we're doing. Um, moving into, like I said, Puerto Rico and um, Jamaica mm-hmm. next year. So uh, that's really exciting for me because Jamaica is my uh, island of my of my of my youth. That's mm-hmm. just where I where I grew up um, to a certain extent. 
And then um, we're going to be, there's going to be a lot more writing mm -hmm. <laughs> and presentation. Muscle. Exactly. Yes. Going to flex that muscle because I've been, I've actually had the opportunity and I was given the opportunity in 2019 to, uh, to write on a consistent uh, basis uh, with a, with a, with a well-known outlet, mm -hmm. but I let my fear, I wrote a couple pieces, but I let my fear get the better of them. And I decided that it wasn't my fear, but it was that I needed to focus on blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So 2020, I'm releasing that. And I'm, you know, and I'm going to claim there's so much that needs to be, in my opinion, needs to be written about in terms of travel, this new Black, this, this like renaissance of black travel. Absolutely. That's happening. Like I want to document that and I want to write about it uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, just the concept of blackness within, you know, uh, the Latinx community um, outside of the United States. I think that that's something that's really important to, uh, to write about and to engage in. So that's a big, that's a big piece of diaspora next year. Um, and then we're opening our music department. Mm. Yeah. So uh, art is a big part of, of us, right? Of our folks. Like Absolutely. art is, is how we stayed alive and, and sane. You know, art isn't the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we cook, all of it. And so um, particularly here, you know, this is about music. Like I just have so many um, friends in Cuba that are amazing musicians, hip hop, reggaeton, like um, salsa, just, just amazing. And so, um, I'm working now to, to figure out what that looks like to bring in, um, to, to create a department that allows for the showcasing of up and coming artists within our diaspora. Because for me, when I hear the music, when I hear, you know, soca, when I hear reggae, when I hear reggaeton, when I hear, when I hear, when I hear Afrobeat, I hear the same thing. Yeah. Obviously it's not all the same, but, but I hear the same thing. And so there's just, I don't know what it is yet, but there's something there that I want to do with them. Um, with that foundation, with that, you know, synchronism that happened with our music. Well, I'm excited about a lot of things. Yes. I have to get my Cuba trip together. Girl, so if we're you talking don't come about, to Cuba, know, yes, we it's, need to, something, maybe with like your listeners, maybe we could do like a, a promotional something. 26er trip to Cuba, is that happening? Oof. All right, we'll make it happen. Let's do it. So where can people find you online? Yes, so uh, easy peasy. It's Diaspora Travel and Trade. I'm sorry, Diaspora Travel Trade or Diaspora TT. Okay. Very easy. That's the website. Um, we're on Facebook, same Diaspora Travel Trade. Uh, and the same thing for Instagram. It's uh, Diaspora underscore travel underscore trade okay you can also find me um if you just google diaspora travel and trade you find me if you just google my name kasara <laughs> davidson you'll find me very very easy um i can uh does it make sense to give email address sure. or number yeah so my you can reach me directly uh my email address it's k.davidson at diaspora tt.com and then uh, you can also reach out, text. Um, I don't do a lot of phone calls, just because I'm really busy, but text or WhatsApp are great. 
particularly because I travel so much, and that's 202-706-8382. Still holding on to the D.C. area. I do have the D.C. area code. Yes, girl. <laughs> Listen, I've thoroughly enjoyed this because we love we love those episodes where there's a rawness in it and, and people, all of our guests are candid, um, but there, there are those special episodes where people really go to a deep place, and that is what the show is built on, right? It's, it's great to achieve and, and blaze trails, but we can't talk about the obstacles and the struggles to get there and the, the things that we've had to overcome, particularly around trauma, um, which many of us within the, the Black community have been trained to just try to move past without working through. Um, when someone comes on, they're willing to talk through their process of learning to healthily cope with the things that have happened to them, be it loss or otherwise. Those are the episodes that we live for um, because you can't be your best self until you dealt with the worst that has happened to you. So I, I thank you. I thank you for coming and being so honest. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to make my way. I'm going to make my way to Cuba for sure. And Jamaica, because as you also shaded me for being <laughs> of Jamaican descent and never having been to Jamaica. Jamaica. We're going we're gonna to make that happen as well. Uh, I'm going to make it happen. So just wait for the program that comes into your email inbox. Because awesome. I know you're busy. So we're just, yes, yes. you need to go to, to both. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Marcus, for this opportunity, you said it was a safe space. Mm -hmm. And it was I'm a glad. safe space. Um, and trauma isn't easy for anyone. And it isn't easy in our community. Mm -hmm. uh, because for a long time, there wasn't a safe space, right? right? Uh, and when I read your story, it resonated with me. Mm -hmm. When I spoke with your brother, he resonated with me, like it was organic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and you're doing amazing things here. Thank and you. I hope that you take the time to be proud Thank of you. yourself because because uh, you're 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 young and you're and you're doing this. And it's hard to see what we're doing when we're in it. Yes, it's hard to see it, um, and it's hard to even take the compliments when people say it because I know after you do this, you've got so much other stuff <laughs> to even make this into something, right? To ma yes. that matters. Oh, you're doing good shit, Mama. I appreciate that. Sometimes we get lost in the the drama of the behind the scenes of putting mm -hmm. the show on everything it takes. <laughs> and the fact that like we are recording on a Sunday today, so tomorrow's Monday mm -hmm. and everything that comes with that. So um, it's not often that we take time to take it all in mm -hmm. and really see the work that we're doing as something that is important and that's needed. So I really appreciate you saying that. For sure. But we are family now. Like, I, I no, I we're know. definitely family. We know we when that connection will leave me family. <laughs> we can like, actually we be related, right? <laughs> figure that out in Jamaica. I was just thinking, we should do a show in Cuba. Why? Why can't we? Like, there's so many entrepreneurs. Yes. And the thing is that because that's a new idea mm -hmm. there. So there's this whole just new. Oh, and that's why we're going to take that offline before someone tries to jack our idea. Listen, but like don't our try whole it, team, exactly. we're a team of travelers. <laughs> it's December 26th, we're behind the scenes staff. We're all about the travel. All so, right. all right, let's make it happen. I'm going to do it. All right, to our listeners, diaspora, travel, and trade. To many of you who know me personally, who are always talking about all my trips and how you want to travel more, um, now we have a Black woman-owned business that we can support 
who is creating experiences and opportunities for us, which is crucial. Um, so please check her out. If you're, you're thinking, just trying to figure out what's out there and what you can do, um, please follow Sarah and her journey and what she's offering as well. And of course, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about this show, especially this episode, because I know a lot of people who listen and I know that you have struck a chord. So make sure you share and just always remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thoval. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.